the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show as we head into Hour 3. Um, usually we would have Brandon Weikert with us, uh, but we're not going to have him today because he's got a bunch of technical difficulties um, that we will um, hopefully get him back. I wanted to have him on to talk about uh, the billions of dollars to Iran that uh, we have freed up. Um, it's an awful thing um, that we're doing this. You think about when Barack Obama was president, it was $400 million for four hostages, and now it's $6 billion for five. That's, uh, that's, that's one, one heck of a global inflation, but it guarantees as the $400 million and as every hostage taking piece of evidence or history shows – a guarantee that more are going to be taken again. So are we just now in the business of enriching our enemies? Are we now doing it with China? Are we doing it with Afghanistan and the Taliban? Are we doing it now with Iran, the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism? And the answer, of course, is yes. Iran is an abuser of human rights. It's a state sponsor of terrorism. It's a hostage taker, and it's enriching and building nuclear technology, and we're freeing up $6 billion for them. The Dangeld, young David, do you know that poem by Rudyard Kipling? You're familiar with Rudyard Kipling, of course. Do you know the poem, The Dangeld? I learned it late in life, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Do you know it? Have you heard it before? It's a heck of a poem. Yes. Oh, you do? Wonderful. It's always a temptation to an armed and agile nation to call upon a neighbor and to say, we invaded you last night. We are quite prepared to fight unless you pay us cash to go away. And that is called asking for Danegeld. And the people who ask it explain that you've only to pay them the Danegeld and then you'll get rid of the Dane. It's always a temptation for a rich and lazy nation to puff and look important and to say, Though we know we should defeat you, we have not the time to meet you. We will therefore pay you cash to go away, and that is called paying the Danegeld. But we've proved it again and again that if once you have paid him the Danegeld, you never get rid of the Dane. It is wrong to put temptation in the path of any nation for fear they should succumb and go away. So when you are requested to pay up or be molested, you will find it better policy to say, we never pay anyone, Danegeld, no matter how trifling the cost, for the end of that game is oppression and shame, and the nation that pays it is lost. How many times have you been hearing me say, we're just lost, we're just lost? It first dawned on me when I was rewatching the closing argument of uh, Paul Newman's in The Verdict. Uh, but <laughs> this, that poem, I think it goes back to like 1911, and we haven't learned this lesson yet. You never get rid of the Dane once you start paying ransom. You enrich it 
anyway, we'll talk. We'll get Brandon on later in the week to talk more about it. Do you have something you wanted to say on this, David? No, you're good. The other thing that I thought was interesting uh, that transpired over the weekend, and I don't know if you saw this, David. Have you seen the song going viral by this country singer, Oliver Anthony, who just kind of got his start a couple years ago, maybe in 2021? He did this one song called Rich Men North of Richmond. You familiar? Yes, I hear it's number one on iTunes. It's amazing. Week. I mean, it, millions of views. Amazing. And um, I can't play it all. Um, and I kind of wished he didn't use some of the language he does because it would probably get more play if he didn't. There are certain FCC rules about what you can play. Just to give you a sense, I can play a little bit, though, I think. Um, give me a second here, and I think we can pull it up. What the world's gotten to for people like me, people like you, wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is, oh it is, living in the new world, with an old soul, these rich men know the rich men, Lord knows they all just want to have told. So, I... That, that's some of the more anodyne lyrics. I just wanted to give you a sense of his voice. The other parts of the lyrics are really quite amazingly uh, trenchant. Um, he's going off on welfare. He's going off on uh, taxes. He's going off on lazy. He's going off on basically everything that um, you might think of was responsible for a lot of the support Donald Trump received in 2015. 2016. Um, he says, I want to be a voice for people, not just them, but humans in general. And as long as you're above the dirt, you've got a fighting chance. And it raises an interesting column from uh, our old friend Charles Lipson, L-I-P-S-O-N, over at the University of Chicago. He says, Oliver Anthony's beautiful, angry song about the people who run roughshod over ordinary Americans and seek to control their lives is the clearest expression of populism since Donald Trump used his own voice to reshape the Republican Party. Although the title refers to rich men and makes a great rhyme, it's also a screed against control by unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats who live in Washington and its wealthy northern Virginia and Maryland suburbs. They all just want to have total control. It's a powerful hymn to the forgotten, put-upon working man, sung with a full-throated, gravelly voice and accompanied solely by Anthony's acoustic resonator guitar. The lyrics are as moving and as authentic as Anthony's voice. There's a reason his song has become the most downloaded one on the Internet. Whatever you think about populism, left or right, the lyrics are worth paying attention to. For in those three minutes, you'll learn more about the anti-Washington grievances than in hours of reading erudite analysis by journalists who visit flyover country from their homes in Georgetown, Cambridge, and newly fashionable Brooklyn. The heart of Anthony's lament is this. These rich men north of Richmond, Lord knows they all just want to have total control, want to know what you think, want to know what you do, and they don't think you know, but I know that you do, because your dollar ain't something and it's taxed to no end because of rich men north of Richmond. Professor Lipson goes on to say it's a battle cry for people who want to resist the control of big money and big government but know they are losing the fight. They resent being investigated by the FBI as potential terrorists when they speak out at school board meetings or affiliate with a traditional branch of the Catholic Church. 
They see a government eager to prosecute political candidates from one party but not the other. They see violent street riots go unprosecuted and the southern border left open in violation of the law, fairness, and public safety. They see their children shut out of public schools for over a year by teachers' unions and so-called experts with more power than evidence. Their populist cry may stretch back to Andrew Jackson and often veers into different forms of extremism and attacks on marginal communities. Those are legitimate fears of populism. Anthony Song has none of that. But you can bet that he will soon be accused of xenophobia, racism, and all the rest of it now that the song is popular. The people who will dump that sludge at the New York Times and on cable channels are the same people Anthony is targeting. They will use their megaphones to damn him. Uh, It's impossible to understand the popularity of rich men north of Richmond without understanding the widely shared shared grievances behind it. Anthony voices one of them is, I wish politicians would look look out for miners and not just miners on an island somewhere. You don't have to love coal-fired electric power plants to have sympathy for the people who have lost their jobs, their hopes, and their future. Hillary Clinton bluntly expressed the contempt Anthony rails against when in, in 2016 she said, we're going to put a lot of coal miners and Coal companies out of business. She devoted a whole chapter of her memoir to the regret she had in saying it. But Joe Biden didn't learn Hillary's lesson. He spoke about coal miners' futures in future in 2019 when he visited Derry, New Hampshire, and he said the tough times they face. He acknowledged the tough times they face and authored offered a piece of unsolicited advice. He said, "Quote: Anybody who can go down 3,000 feet in a mine can sure as hell learn to program as well." Anybody who can throw coal into a furnace can learn how to program, for God's sake. His comment was met with silence from the audience, but we've now used it as a meme, go learn how to program. David Weigel posted it on Twitter when he was covering Joe Biden, and his newspaper never ran the full quote. His editors must have known how dumb it was, and the Washington Post was there to protect him. The same news organization that proclaims every day that democracy dies in darkness, the, the entire the entire problem is summed up in that last part of the story. The Washington Post wouldn't even quote Joe Biden on saying something so damning and damaging. I want to say something about populism when we come back too, if you'll let me. I'm Seth Liebson, and we'll be right back. This notion of populism, which I wanted to speak with you about a little bit and just think about, it's supposed to connote a negative, uh, a negative aspect of our, of our politics. Um, and I think it's a slightly unfair rap. If it's opposed, if populism is opposed to big, as um, Charles Lipson was pointing out, as I was quoting him in the previous segment. You know, it's not just the left that has railed and rallied against big. Uh, The Republicans have, too. Conservatives have, too. Jerry Ford was doing it as a congressman back in the 60s. Um, The word populist. William Sapphire has a political dictionary. He, he, He says in his entry, populist means attuned to the needs of the people. Now used with a connotation of old-fashioned radicalism, a liberalism rooted deeply in U.S. history. Lyndon Johnson was called by friendly writers a political leader in the old populist tradition. 
when Jimmy Carter invade against favoritism and the Nixon pardon in his 1976 acceptance speech. He said, quote, I see no reason why big shot crooks should go free while the poor ones go to jail. Close quote. Who, what, what party should be saying that now, huh? The word is used today with a small p as a reminder of the theories rather than the structure of the populist party or the People's Party, which was a radical political party in the United States back in the um, in the early days of the uh, 20th century. Um, what what more can I just say about populism except that? I suppose it also has the negative connotation because of demagoguery, an associated phrase that goes with a lot of populist leaders, not always, but often. You think about the kingfish, Huey Long. He was a classic populist, right? Um, you think about, by the way, why do you know why he was called the kingfish, young David? Do you know why Huey Long was called the kingfish? No, I don't. It was... Um, it was it was based on an old Amos and Andy uh, cartoon character, I guess. Um, but uh, you know, you have Huey Long, you have hits on the right. Goldwater was considered a populist. Why? Because he talked about things that ran against the elite or ran against. I suppose you would just say big, um, like. We now, as a Republican Party, tend to talk about whether it's big business, big government, big bureaucracy, big anything. You will hear Dennis Prager often saying big is bad. Big isn't inherently bad. Let's 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 not let's not say inherently and every time. But when I was thinking of the issue of populism in our politics, I went back in my head to a to an old moment from the TV show West Wing in the 1990s. And the scene is Toby, who I think is one of the speechwriters or the chief speechwriter um, for uh, the president. And he's stuck at a bar in Indianapolis. Um, and a guy at the bar just starts talking to him uh, about how he's on a flight delay and Usually you wouldn't think of a speechwriter wanting to listen to someone at a bar. <laughs> They're just so elites, a White House speechwriter, especially uh, if you ever watched the West Wing. They were kind of elite people. But this guy started talking in a way that, again, I suppose Democrats imagined themselves holding these points of view or holding these concerns. But it really is now much more appropriately in the, um, in the Republican Party. I wanted to play a little bit about it, of it. And I spent half the day thinking about what happens if I slip and fall down on my own front porch. It should be hard. I like that it's hard. Put your daughter through college, it's, it's a man's job. Man's accomplishment. But it should be a little easier. Just a little easier. Because in that difference is everything I'm sorry I'm uh, I'm I'm Matt Kelly then he goes and introduces himself to Toby and Toby calls over Josh who I think is the chief of staff or the deputy chief of staff to come listen to this man you know again two high-ranking 
officials at the West Wing stuck in Indianapolis at a hotel bar, not usually wanting to, you know, mingle with others. But what Toby saw in that man's soliloquy was, you know, the idea of what the reelection campaign should be about. Life should be a little easier. It should be made a little little easier. It's okay that it's hard. Uh, Most of us, you know, think life should be hard. Uh, Hoover had the phrase rugged individualism. Rugged implies, implicates hard. Settling the West implicates hard. Growth implicates difficult. But he said it should be a little easier. And I think that's, that's right. He said, and the difference between hard and a little easier is everything. And you just think about where we are today and how difficult it is to get things done. The rule of regulations at the federal level, state level, at the local level. People are going to be doing their taxes again soon. I mean, it has become hard and harder than it used to be and harder than it needs to be. And I think we as a party, whether we nominate Donald Trump or whether we nominate Ron DeSantis or whether we nominate Vivek Ramaswamy or someone else, I think that's that's where we want to that's where we want to live. We want to live in that distance between hard and making life just a little bit easier. It's a throwback to Ronald Reagan, who was accused of being a populist when he said what the nine most was it the nine most dangerous words you can ever hear is I'm here from the government. I'm from the government and I'm here to help you something like that. And. So it's interesting how populism, though really a lefty democratic thing, has become a negative appellation attached to Republicans these days. And I suppose, too, the negativity comes from the whole word popular, which is really part of communist lore, too, right? The popular front, that kind of notion. Anyway, just some thoughts. You hear the word populist, examine it, just like with something big, examine it. It's not inherently a negative thing. Little Lindsey Buckingham. Love him. Great. You know what else is big that people see kind of as an oppressive force? The legal system. And so big that it and so avaricious in going after as I was reading with Charles Lipson, you know, whether it's whether it's parents at school board meetings, whether it's the DOJ and Catholic churches, you 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 see this with the what was the word I used? Avariciousness with um, going after Trump. They were so they are so um, pedal to the metal on this that um, what I was talking about earlier, they um, they they released. <laughs> almost seemingly released the indictment of Donald Trump before he's even been indicted. Reuters reports it differently than I was earlier, but says that the Fulton County State Court in Georgia posted a case information document for a few moments online today that lists charges against Donald Trump. And the document was subsequently deleted, but not before, of course, you know, it went everywhere and people were able to copy it. The Reuters report that those charges were filed is inaccurate, the district attorney's office stated. Beyond that, we cannot comment. The court clerk's office in a statement said no documents had been filed on Monday related to the grand jury that has been hearing evidence in the case. 
The office described what it called a fictitious document that has been circulating online without specifying whether it was the one listing criminal charges against Trump. As Hinderocker, John Hinderocker puts it, while its public filing evidently was premature, the case report is obviously authentic. It includes a case number and identifies Judge Rochelle Carnesale as the presiding judicial officer. The document lists 39 charges against Trump arising out of his post-election activities in Georgia. All the charges are felonies, but the case report leads off with an allegation that Donald Trump violated Georgia's RICO statute, which is listed as a serious felony. RICO is racketeer-influenced corrupt operations. I think that's right. Organizations. Racketeering-influenced corrupt organizations. This is the text of the law that Trump apparently will be charged with violating. You ready for this? It shall be unlawful for any person through a pattern of racketeering activity or proceeds derived therefrom to acquire or maintain directly or indirectly any interest in or control of any enterprise, real property or personal property of any nature, including money. Does that sound like something Donald Trump did in post-election goings-on in Georgia? It shall be unlawful for any person employed by or associated with any enterprise to conduct or participate in directly or indirectly such enterprise through a pattern of racketeering activity. It's a loop of a law. It's been at the federal level uh, under a lot of scrutiny. And these state RICO pieces of legislation, I assume, are subject to the equal same amount of abuse, which takes me back to the point I wanted to issue to conservatives and do from time to time uh, about D.C.'s bureaucracy. I'm here, I'm, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. Often you'll hear the phrase, I'm from Washington, D.C., or I'm from the federal government. And many conservatives with a Tenth Amendment sensibility will talk about, you know, moving control from Washington, D.C. to the states. And It's fine in and of itself and a good idea that government be more responsive at the most local of possible levels it can be. But it's not an end in and of itself to simply move one bureaucracy from one place to another. For example, here, um, I don't know the difference at all, frankly, between being indicted in a state court versus a federal court especially if you're going to attach 39 felonies to it, a state RICO versus a federal RICO. But think about it in terms of education. You know, in the education movement for many years, it was about moving education from the federal bureaucracies to the state and local bureaucracies. And and, and it's no better. You know, state bureaucracies, even at the more local level, you know what they can do? They can affect you even worse. It's about the entire structure of government and what it's for. It's about who governs. It's about personnel. It's not just moving from D.C. to Phoenix or from D.C. to Fulton or from D.C. to Chicago. Look at how bad some of these places are when it comes to policing, when it comes to education, when it comes to the courts, when it comes to everything we really should and do care about. It's about the right people And it's about the right amount of power, which should always be less. Not moved, not transferred, less.
Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I kind of think of that song. I, I think I put that song in there, Steve Miller, for you, David, because that's— Did you? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Because you're, I go dancing You're a dancing fool, as they say, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you love to go dancing ones. I don't think you dance to that kind of music No, very swing often. dancing. So it's mostly stuff from the 30s and 40s yeah. and that 90s revival that I think we mentioned a couple weeks ago. Yes, exactly. It yeah. And it's a, it's swing, swing is, obvious, is different than ballroom, but it's, it's, it's adjacent, right? Ballroom dancing? Yeah, I think ballroom probably— Predated it, yeah. Probably predated it. Has it. a very rich history that I think goes back to like uh, ancient. Yes, yes. yeah, <laughs> way before. It goes back to Cinderella. Mm-hmm. Those times. <laughs> wasn't that Never a ball? Those times were Take me. Wasn't that a ball? Yeah. What, do you, what do you got? Speaking of uh, nothing, I've got, a, I've got a Rockefeller in sixty pin today. Rockefeller in sixty. Rocky in sixty. So he ran for president against Nixon in the Republican primary in 1960 very briefly got zero delegates zero it wasn't much of a serious run for president as most of rocky's runs were. yeah <laughs> he got he got nothing and uh, got nothing at the convention uh our then governor fannin paul fannin from arizona spoke at the convention and did 1960. what 1960 1960 what did he do oh i don't know he put barry goldwater's name in for, for the nomination yes 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 and uh, Goldwater, it was you can get the speech still online of Governor Fannin's, I think. And um, is he governor at the time or senator? He was governor at the time, and uh, he became senator later. And uh, anyway, he put Goldwater's uh, name in for the convention. Goldwater removed it, but declined to uh, declined to make an effort there. But uh, of course, gave us that great speech on uh, let's grow up, conservatives, because mm. so many people just thought. Nixon was too much of the same, right? Well, it's because he offered the vice presidency to Rocky, and mm-hmm. Rocky said, no, I won't be anybody's number two man. Yeah. And there was the compromise of Fifth Avenue. It gave it to Henry Cabot Lodge, ultimately, didn't it? Yes, yes, and that was Eisenhower's recommendation. Yeah. But Nixon's first pick was Rockefeller to yeah. bring uh, Republican unity together, the yeah. two main primary candidates, yeah. and that resulted in... The Compromise of Fifth Avenue, which was where Nixon basically surrendered, I think it was 10 points on the Republican Party plank yeah. that Rockefeller basically hand-added. Yeah. And so the populist, uh, there we are again, uh, push for Goldwater um, that Paul Fannin instigated um, left a lot of delegates unhappy, right? And, uh, you know, the usual cry that we hear these days about, uh, won't you support the ticket, you know, even if you lose your if your candidate loses in the primary, I know it wasn't a primary, it's the same idea. We've we've been dealing with this for a very long time, and that's when Goldwater gave his Let's Grow Up Conservatives speech. He said, we put our shoulder to the wheel for Nixon. If we want to take back the party, which I think we can, uh, we have to stave off the blueprint for socialism. That was his phrase for the Democratic Party um, in 1960, blueprint for socialism. And, you know, look at how far we've come. It's now not a blueprint anymore. It's not a draft. It's not a design. It's kinetic. You know, I was reading over the weekend that uh, Rockefeller, when he was vice president, when he ended up taking the number two job. Yeah, for Ford, right? Yes, under in the Ford re-election campaign that Rockefeller was not uh, a part of. He was not a candidate in that re-election. That's right. He paid, and we have all this talk of Oppenheimer for the past few weeks, he paid Edward Teller. Oh. We discussed a while back a hundred dollars a day to be a campaign consultant. Nelson Rockefeller. Nelson Rockefeller paid, paid him $100 paid a teller a hundred bucks a day to in be a consultant. Money to yeah, Jer- yeah. to Jerry Ford. 
to, for the campaign for the real interesting campaign, and know? and you know where Kissinger got to start too as in an, yeah he was he was he was a uh, he was kind of a Rockefeller creation and Rock- I, I took a picture of the no. the book I was reading yeah what did it say he said he couldn't understand him at all Teller he couldn't understand Teller's Hungarian accent yeah. so he had other people talk to him I wonder translate I wonder how him. they understood Kissinger <laughs> right um. And he talked about meteorological warfare. Yeah. Um, yeah. All sorts of crazy. Well, Hallman was telling Hugh Hallman yeah, was yeah. telling us he worked with Edward Teller a little bit in the Reagan reelection campaign because Teller became a Reagan advisor, particularly. Right? Don't I have that right? Mm-hmm. I, I do have that yeah. right. Yeah. We talked about that with the yeah, and he helped ago. play op eds by Edward Teller and the whole strategic defense initiative business and all that. Right. Vivek Ramaswamy this morning was on uh, Hugh Hewitt's show talking foreign policy, which was kind of his weak spot, a weak spot that Hugh Hewitt – did I say Hallman? I meant Hugh Hewitt. <laughs> what did I say? Who's show? I said Hugh Hewitt. Yeah, okay. Hugh, Hugh Hewitt's show. show this morning. Just to clarify. Yeah, okay. Get my fricatives right here. Um, he was on – Ramaswamy was on Hugh Hewitt's show this morning talking foreign policy, which was his weak underbelly that Hugh Hewitt had previously exposed. It says something good about Ramaswamy that he is willing to keep going into uh, shows like that where, where, where he knows he's going to be given a hard press and where Hugh Hewitt has continued to press him hard. But he was very good. And he got hung up initially on the nuclear triad question by Hugh Hewitt some months ago. And he said he was asked about it. He goes, yeah, but I think it should be a quad and I think it should involve space now, too. We should think of our of our of our strategic defenses, including space. And I thought, you know, if Brandon were here, we'd talk about that. We'll get Brandon back uh, tomorrow or later in the week. But um, it's something very good about Ramaswamy. I saw him also on a podcast with um, Candace Owens and one of Donald Trump's most articulate and strongest supporters um, who really, for an hour, drilled down trying to confront Ramaswamy on um, past inconsistencies. And Ramaswamy went there knowing that that's what it would be. And Candace and this attorney are very gifted um, at doing this sort of thing. And, you know, he held his own. I'll leave you all to watch it. But whether he held his own or not, you know, whether he, you know, exposed some flaws or not, you got to give credit to the guy who just says yes to any interview, particularly the hard ones. You got to give credit to it. Maybe that explains some of his rise. Anyway, all right, we'll be right back. Thinking about the economy, you think about uh, those inflation numbers that came out last week in the wrong direction. You think about talk still of a recession on the horizon, uh, the stock market's volatility, of course, and bank failures. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve? Why Refi has that? They have an investment in a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises, where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you do need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily. You're paid monthly. There are no fees. It is a secure, collateralized portfolio that Y-Refi offers. And Y-Refi is a due diligence-approved firm. You can earn up to 10.25% fixed rate of return, a 10 and a quarter percent fixed rate of return 
with Y Refi. And they're based here locally on Scottsdale Road in the 101. They encourage you to stop by their offices. I've been. You're not going to be asked to sign anything. You're not going to get a sales pitch. But when you do meet with them, you'll see why I like and trust them so much. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34. 888-Y-REFI-34. I'll just close with one more thought on this Oliver Anthony Phenom song. And, uh, you know, I think I think what I would say, Irving Crystal said, uh, what did he say? Two and a half cheers for capitalism. Not three, two and a half. Um, because of something that an old editor, Will, Will Schlamm, said, an old editor at National Review, the problem with communism is communism. The problem with capitalism is capitalists. There's always, there's always people who are going to work and rig systems. That's going to be inherent in the world we live in. But in Oliver Anthony's last stanza, he says, Lord, it's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me and people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is, oh, it is. And he's speaking to an anger. And the only thing I regret really about this song, some of the lyrics, just because of their, what, nature. Um, The only thing I regret about it is the lament at the end that um, we, it can't be addressed. It can't be fixed. It should not be a It should not be a lament. It can be fixed. I believe it still can be fixed. I believe that's our duty here. I believe things can be turned around. Channel the anger appropriately. Channel the um, disappointments appropriately. Have the right order of your loves in check. The order amorum, and do something about it. Do something about it. Because um, it's no use just to sing sad songs, right? It's no use just to sing sad songs or silly songs. We should have marching songs, and we should have fighting songs, and we should have political war songs, and we should roll up our sleeves and get to it, because we still can. Thanks, David. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Leapson. God bless you all, and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.